I am delighted to introduce and chair uh, what promises to be a fascinating evening uh, of discussion on the future of the Eurozone, a subject that uh, has perhaps been made uh, even more topical by today's speech by the uh, British Prime Minister on the role of Britain in Europe. We are very fortunate to have an exceptionally apt speaker for the topic at hand. Our colleague, Luis Garicano, from the Management Department, has been a tireless advocate, both in his native Spain and in the broader European context, for policies and institutional changes that will permit the Eurozone to survive and to improve its functioning going forward. We are very grateful that he has agreed to share his vision with us. Besides Luis, we have a distinguished panel of other LSE colleagues who will respond to Luis's uh, remarks and engage with him and the audience. The panelists are sitting here in front of me. You'll see them later when, when they come on the, on, the, on the stage. They include um, uh, Paul de Graue, who is the head of the European Institute and has written some of the foundational and fundamental books and papers on the economics of the European Union and also has directly engaged in European policymaking, among other things, by acting as advisor to the President of the European Commission. Uh, also, the panel include uh, John Van Rienen and Wouter Den Haan, who are the directors of the two centers that sponsor tonight's event. John is the director of the Center for Economic Performance and is well known for his work on productivity and growth, among other things, and has recently co-chaired the LSE's Growth Commission, which is going to uh, publish its finding about a week from now, I think. Yeah. Um, and also has been recently a thorn on the side of the UK government with his uh, criticism of the austerity policies. Uh, Wouter is the director and founding father of the newly created Center for Macroeconomics, which has come into existence January 1st, is that right? Uh, thanks to a grant uh, from ECRC, which Wouter has worked tirelessly to secure. Wouter is an expert on economic fluctuations including the role of the financial sector in stabilizing or destabilizing the economy, as it may be, and is also an economic advisor to the Dutch government. In terms of the plan for the evening, I have asked Louis to speak for approximately 45 minutes, after which I will turn to our panel and ask each of the panel, panelists to respond uh, briefly. I will then go back to Louis and ask him to uh, react to the uh, panel's comments. And finally, I will open the floor to the audience for uh, any questions they may have uh, for, uh, for Luis or for any of the panel members. And with that, I believe I said enough. Uh, so once again, I'm delighted to introduce Luis Garicano. Uh, is the microphone on? Uh, good evening, everybody. Is it, is it on? Can you hear it? So thanks for having me. Thanks, Francesco, for the invitation and a very kind presentation. And thanks, uh, John Varina, as well. Let me also uh, do some sales and marketing. I think the Growth Commission report that you'll see next Thursday deserves very much our attention. They've done a gigantic amount of work hearing up a lot of people. So thanks to John Varina for, for inviting me as well and for sponsoring this with Bob. And for, to Paul for discussing. Uh, it's uh, uh, just a credit. This is like a movie. I have to give thanks to so many people, it's like the Oscars. These are two 
the two groups of people that have worked on this, uh, Paul de Graue is one of them, uh, and is inspired to many of the things, and um, uh, the Euronomics group with Marcus Brunemeyer, Dimitri Vallanos, who is at LSE, uh, some of the proposals, and I'm also going to be relying on a paper in the Journal of Economic Perspectives that uh, Tano Santos and me are just, uh, I'm just finishing up. <coughs> it's a strange time, and it's a strange time because uh, the crisis seems kind of over without much having happened. There, there has happened one thing very, very important, uh, which is that the European Central Bank has decided to act in a way that uh, is more or less similar to what all the central banks in the world do. Uh, and with that fact, and without much change in the underlying economics, what we see is a very large drop in the interest rate differentials in the last years. The market participants like, like to talk about risk on and risk off. They would say risk on now. Yesterday there was a sale for Spain's debt, and it was the largest uh, order book ever in history. Of course, other prices which were, which were not necessarily very low, but if you look at the graph in today's FT, you see the interest rates coming down, the interest rate differentials coming down substantially now. Uh, the risk premium is around uh, 350, which is what it was quite a while ago before a big part of the, of the, of the, bad, of the, of the worst part of the crisis. Um, so we do have a central bank in Europe, uh, the European Central Bank, deciding to act as a lender of last resort, and I'll discuss that briefly. But I would argue that the crisis is far from over in, in many ways. It's far from over... Uh, because the governance of the Eurozone is still very incomplete. It's far for over because we have a perspective in Europe, in England, in Spain, and in many other places of what is politics without growth, uh, a politics where basically all the games are zero-sum, where I, what I lose is what you, what, you, what you get, and as a result, we're kind of without the oil of growth, uh, every conflict becomes a distributional conflict with little ability to, to add to it. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to identify the, what I think are the two key elements of the crisis. I'll talk a little bit about the Eurozone and a little bit about the periphery countries. Then I will give you a case study, which is going to be the case of Spain, to try to explain you what does the crisis actually mean for a particular country and how do we link the crisis that Spain is suffering with the, Euro, with the Eurozone uh, problems. And then... I'm going to, do, to sp explain this roadmap that Paul de Grau and others contributed to creating on the Euro, uh, the INET uh, Euro Council uh, roadmap, and I will kind of compare it with what is happening. I will do a little bit of a report card where we'll see what are the things that are done and what are the things that need to be. Okay, that's the plan. Um, and let me first say there is a clear design problem with the Euro. Okay, there is no question about it. I think there is uh, three issues that that need our attention. And instead of telling you what the issues are, I would just like to quote from a 1998 Financial Times article by Paul de Graue, who will be the discussion. He, he was after the Asian crisis, and Paul says, you know, can the Asian crisis come, happen in Europe? This is in the FT, and you can see it in his website. Um, I came across it. He never, he never mentioned it to me, but I, I, I was pretty stunned. This kind of financial crisis happen in the Asian crisis happened in Europe. And he says, yeah, you have the ingredients for it. The, Euro the new European Monetary Union that you're going to put in place is actually going to look very much like the Asian crisis looks. It's going to have 
all this capital mobility and it's going to have a fixed exchange rate, giving people a false sense of security. And then he goes over a full paragraph of suppose a real estate bubble in a country that let's call, for example, purposes Spain. <laughs> I mean, and then he goes a full paragraph explaining the real estate bubble in Spain and how people kind of all people go and invest there and all the banks are in trouble. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's worth, it's worth reading, okay? So we have set up a union that is incomplete in terms of the banking supervision is at national level, whereas the monetary policy is at the, at the European level, the fiscal policy is national, uh, the, 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 you cannot correct the imbalances in terms of competitiveness with the single currency. So the union is incomplete in many respects. You don't necessarily need to solve all of those, but there clearly are design problems. And what you have is the flight to safety that happens the moment there's a moment of panic between the solves and, and the north. So basically people, the flight to safety is not to the safe asset in a country, but to the safe asset in another country, which creates these gigantic moves in the differentials that that graph shows you. And what really makes the crisis extremely complicated and unique, I think, is this diabolic loop between banks and states. That's really the key design problem that I think needs correcting. The basic design problem is that you have states that are supposed to back up the banks, but that don't have the ability to back them unlimitedly because they cannot print their own money. And you have banks that hold those states' debts and that are not sufficiently diversified in holding debts from all countries because for regulatory reasons and for pressure from the state, etc., end up holding a lot of the states' debt. So what you have is in some countries, like Spain and Ireland, the banks go wrong, the states are supposed to stand behind them, but they don't have the financial ability to really stand behind them. So the, financial, the, the, the private debt sinks the, the, the public taxpayer. And countries like Greece uh, and Portugal, where what happens is the state starts being in big trouble and causes a financial crisis in the banks. None of those things can be solved, the, at least the confidence or the multiple equilibrium part of those, of those problems cannot really be solved by appealing to a central bank because there's no central bank behind. That's the essential problem, and that's the design problem that I think can be corrected. Now, the interesting thing is, in the same way as Paul Ocarado was pointing these things out, when you see the Delog report, and I wonder if he will agree later in his discussion, a lot of these things are also in the Delog report. I don't think they saw the financial aspect of the crisis, but they saw a lot of it. And the truth of the matter, this is the report that created the European Union. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, it seems hard to believe now, but they did it on purpose. Okay? There's this bike metaphor in the construction of the European Union, which is, you know, we have to keep moving, and the European Union only works as long as it's advancing. And so what we do is we create on purpose an incomplete construction. We get ourselves in trouble like a bike, and then we do another. The bike is always in disequilibrium, right? It only runs because you're falling forward in a way, right? So the European Union is falling forward. That's the idea. Um, so there's a political, that's a political objective. We're going to try to put the pieces to continue growing Europe and the treaty, as, as uh, Prime Minister Cameron said today, commits everybody to just continue this construction. Of course, the problem is by the time the crisis happens, it's not obvious that the Europeans are really so much interested in ceding more power and creating an ever closer union. And now what we are left with is thinking, what are the minimum elements we need to, to put in place to solve this? And what the solution, the INET solution that I'm going to present, the INET had several German economists, including several from the Council of Economic Advisors of, of Merkel, and 
Southern economists and economists from everywhere, so we were trying to kind of get a minimum common denominator. And what I will present is what is the minimum amount of institutional, of new institutions that Europe is going to need in order to, 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 to move forward. But it would be silly of me to say it's just a Euro problem and nothing else. Okay? The truth of the matter is there are some countries, there are some countries which have some unreformed institutions and which have some really serious problems. And not only were they unreformed before, but the European, but the bubble, the financial bubble, has actually created a problem that actually is going to be, it's not just a business cycle problem, that has a lot of elements for persistence of this low growth into the medium run. And usually we think it's the debt overhang. If you have to repay this debt, we're going to be growing little because people are always afraid of if I lend you, you know, who is going to repay this back. And there's the government weight, budget, which grew too much, and we'll see that later. But there are other elements of, of persistence that are worrying. And I'm going to talk about them in the Spanish case. One element of persistence is, like in the resource course, these countries were investing in the wrong stuff. During these 10 years, countries like Spain and Ireland, but also like Greece and Portugal, they had the wrong price signals. People, for example, just to give you an example I'll show you later, in Spain they quit school. In the moment in which the returns to education, as many of you students here at LSE know, the moment the returns to education are highest, people were getting the signals that what you should do is stop working and go and lay some bricks. Okay? 25% of the male population in Spain, for example, was actually working directly in construction. I'm not adding that people were working making doors and all other things. So all these people now need to be, in some sense, recycled. And if you are 29 years old and you've been working 10 years, earning 3,500 euros and driving a Golf GTI and having a nice house with what you earn from construction, it's not obvious that you now want to retrain yourself in order to earn 750 or 800 euros if you don't have even secondary school. Um, so um, that's the, the, the piece that, that Jesus and, uh, and Tano Santos and me are, are writing uh, for, for the Journal of Economic Perspectives that basically says that a lot of the persistence doesn't just come from the debt overhang, but from the institutional weakening. What happens is, you know, who has power to pressure the government into doing what they want? The groups that are more successful. And in some of these countries, the groups that were successful were developers, construction companies, etc. And the institutional, the governance, has deteriorated substantially during these years. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I'm Spanish, as, as, as most of you know, and it's pretty embarrassing, uh, all the corruption cases that are coming lately, just, just a, bit, a bit shocking. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. Okay, so basically there is a governance crisis at the European level, and I would argue, uh, even if I would wish I wouldn't need to argue this, the truth of the matter is there is a governance crisis at the level of many of those countries that are unreformed economies that had essentially finished up a catch-up phase more or less simultaneously by the end of the 1990s in terms of productivity growth and many other measures. Basically, it looked exhausted. People in Ireland were saying that. People in Spain were saying that. And got this extra lease on life of 10 years of just kind of throwing, uh, throwing more gas to the fire and then suddenly discover that they need to do all the work that they didn't do when the euro started. So let me just start by telling you a little bit about the Spanish case in order not to make it very abstract about the institutions of the euro, and then we're going to go back to the institutions of the euro and think, okay, how, how does this help us and what do we need to know? What do we exactly need to do in order to solve this problem? So Spain uh, had a period of very much convergence until 
basically the, the euro crisis starts 2009. Uh, and if you see, like, uh, this study I, I did with, with McKinsey in, in 2010 on basically trying to figure out what was the what was the growth prospects for Spain. And Spain converged very much. Um, it had a big inflation differential with Germany, but so did almost every other country in Europe. Germany was really kind of having a period of very, very low wage growth and very low inflation. And the basic thing that happened is Spain had a gigantic drop in interest rates. This is true for Ireland. This is even more true for Greece. Uh, the drop in real interest rates for Spain uh, between 12 and uh, minus two. We had several years of negative interest rates uh, during the start of the decade. And there's a lot of financing. Where does the financing go? Well, this is a country that has traditionally have a lot of problems of uh, defaults and things like that. People just think wars, inflation, etc. People think of the housing as, as the safest asset. They also have a large pool. It also had a large pool of unemployed people in 1996, 97. Uh, the government did a few regulatory changes that allowed town halls to basically put more money uh, on the market, more, more, more land on the market. So a lot of it went to a, um, to a uh, real estate, uh, to real estate growth. The problem is, um, so what's the financial channel? The financing channel. The financial channel is the Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or the, you know, savings and loans uh, of the U.S., uh, the Landesbanken of Germany, which in, in, the U, in, in Germany always end up seeming to get in some trouble, are the Cajas in Spain. The Cajas were small banks um, that were regional, were foundations, were not-for-profit. And I say were because basically they've disappeared by law over the course of this year. They are disappearing by law, almost all of them. And they basically, you know, they're your, your mom and dad, savings and loans. You know, you had it in the UK as well. And... They had, uh, they were small, they were controlled by politicians, but kind of when you are small, it doesn't really matter, right? You can do a bit of crazy things. Maybe you give a loan to somebody you shouldn't. The thing that changes is the 1992 Single Market Act allows the Cajas to expand beyond their region. Then they have access to the global capital markets. They have backed from a state which is AAA, and they have no currency risk. So basically, they have access to an enormous amount of credit. And what they do is they throw it into real estate. And the union of the Cajas and the regions is really the capital scene of Spain and the towns. Basically, you have the same guys sitting in the regional government, sitting in the Cajas boards, being the developers. It's really a very, very scary triangle there. Um, so the Cajas were very much growing over all this time, and they were growing by being very aggressive. The share of loans uh, ended up being 50% at the end of the period by the time the crisis started. And uh, Vicente Cunat from LSE and myself did a, a paper, a piece, where um, we basically looked at the vitas of these guys. These are guys were basically people who didn't know what they were doing. Okay? The, the guy who was running the Caja that lost more money, Van Caja, before running the Caja had been the head of an uh, auto dealership. Okay? Head of auto dealership, mayor or something, ran the Caja. You know? I mean, these are literally the entire management was like that. That explains a lot of the variance in real estate and in bad assets and in which cars need to be rescued. Big housing bubble, uh, by the end of it, 42% of, uh, of the of GDP lent to real estate developers and another 60% of GDP. The little blue ones are GDP percent. They are lent to 
uh, people to buy housing. Um, so a big increase in public, private debt, not as big as in the UK, uh, but, but very substantial, one of the highest in the world. Um, and simultaneously, uh, as you're getting all this financing from abroad, a current account deficit, which is the counterpart. I tend to think of the crisis as more coming from the finance side to the current account side, but both things are, it's an identity, so both things are, are involved. Um, I wanted to talk about the persistence. That's what I told you I would just talk about in Spain, and I want to talk about three ba basic reasons that the bubble is not gone, why the bubble actually is likely to persist in, in, in some ways. And the three are the big bad asset problem, the deficit, and the competitiveness issue. Um, during all this time, Spain grew 3.6% per year on average. That's much more than the European Union, much more than the United States. But, and this is a pretty shocking growth accounting, the TFP had negative growth on average over all those years. Productivity decreased. So what, what is going on? The labor input, essentially, there's also big growth in capital. The labor input is skyrocketing. You have a gigantic amount of immigration. 10% of the people uh, moved into the country. Over 10% uh, of the population was foreign-born and basically moved in this period. There was no immigration before. A uh, big increase in female participation and a big decrease in unemployment. So it's kind of a, you could say it's a low-quality growth. What is unusual in Spain is the distortions in the human capital investment decisions. I think that's, that's a pretty half um, scary thing for the future, and I just want to point it out. Essentially, what happens is the wage signals are encouraging people to drop out of school. This is something I put in my blog. Uh, and what it shows you, the red line on the left, is the ratio of uh, bachelor's to high school diploma earnings. And what you see is that uh, before the boom, a, a, college, a person who went to college would earn 25% more than the people, person who didn't go to college. By the end of the period, the earnings premium had disappeared. You didn't have any earnings premium from going to college. You could earn the same, essentially, just attending high school. So what that tells you is what would you expect? People to drop out of school, right? And that's what you're going to see. This is a comparison. Uh, there was uh, last year somebody did an actual paper with this data, a Bonomen Hospital. And what you see in the middle column, um, I, I don't think I have this thing working. Uh, what you see in the middle column is that, uh, in this column, is that the, between 97, the male uh, wage premium 90-10 was actually dropping. And if you compare it with Germany or with the US, obviously, in information technology revolution, globalization, we know wage premium are increasing. The, the salary that somebody who studies gets relative to someone who doesn't study has been increasing over, over long periods of time, simply because the low-end jobs are being outsourced or are being disappeared through automatization. And also the medium, the medium jobs, the 90-50 percentile is also having that kind of impact, as you saw. So basically, you see here the share of people in construction, males between going up from 15 to 25%. You see the wages in construction. Uh, this is, they are basically at the 25th, 27th percentile when the period starts. A construction worker, although increase in, in supply in, and yet, in shares, and yet the wage is increasing to the 40th percentile in construction. So it's essentially the same story. You should just stop working and go get yourself a job in laying bricks or something uh, in, in the construction industry. What's the consequence? That's the dropout rate, um, third highest in the European Union. Here are the dynamics, in the OCDE, here are the dynamics, okay? 
what you see, and I think it's kind of a, almost a smoking gun, is if I put the European Union uh, dropout rate, it would look very much like this, like the Italian one. Okay? It goes down basically over time. And the Spanish one was basically like the Italian one. In fact, it was better. It was, the dropout rate was dropping from 40 to 30% in 2000. And what you see here is not only it stops dropping, but it actually increases. Okay? That's the share of kids who don't finish high school, secondary education. Okay? So what you see is that um, other countries, such as Portugal or Turkey, it's actually dropping. And it does look like Spain is actually kind of suffering from a, from a, from a relative underperformance there. That's the first sort of source of persistence. This large number of people who have uh, stopped studying or who, are, who would have otherwise finished studies, who have gone for something that the market price signals suggested was a good choice, um, either in retrospect or maybe in hindsight, or maybe in advance we would have said it was not a very good choice, and now there's this generation which is going to be very squeezed. The second source of persistence, of course, is the structural budget deficit. If you look at, at Spanish kind of accounting, I mean, the, the, minister, the, the Minister of Finances was always proud. Spain was running a big, big budget surplus. Spain doesn't have a big state, okay? So these kind of levels of expenditure out of GDP are essentially like in the U.S., okay? 35% uh, expenditure out of... Uh, uh, 35%, I mean, if you go to these numbers, sorry... This is the revenue. If you go to this number, it wouldn't be much higher than the United States. And they're going to try to get expansion there. What happens, what is that CSOR opening up is two things. Unemployment insurance contribution are 4% of GDP, 40 billion. Okay, just that accounts for the growth from 40 to 44 of that uh, expenditure number. The revenue coming from directly from housing accounts for another three to four points. So basically, just the unemployment plus the housing revenue disappearing is going to give you a big deficit, which is going to be very, very hard to close. And it's particularly hard to close because there is a demographic problem. And I think uh, the, the dependency ratio in Spain is not, I mean, you all know it, the, the, it's happening uh, everywhere in the Western world, but it's happening particularly in the Mediterranean countries. Uh, fertility rates are very low, and you're going to have this social security problem where the state accounts are bad, and they are going to kind of continue into the longer-term retirement. The last issue on expenditures that I think is important is the regions. Um, during this period, part of what I was telling you about the institutional issue is that the decentralization happened in this very um, generous way. You have all these regions. Everybody needs more. In every one of these meetings, there was three restructuring of the regional budget. In every one of these three Everybody was a winner. Every region came up with more money than they had before. How can it be? Because there's gigantic growth and there's a bigger pie and we just give more to everybody. Okay? That's just not a financing arrangement that is feasible. And essentially, the regions account for all of the expenditure in health and in education. And as a result, the regional budget is the, blue, is the um, uh, red, which is 36% of GDP, of the total budget, sorry, of the total public expenditure. Now, I, I, it is something that hurts me to talk about institutions. I would rather say, oh, it's fine with Spain, it's all the Euro trouble. And the truth of the matter is, I, it wouldn't be true. Okay, so um, the regions have been built, uh, 
without much consideration for uh, sense of any kind, and now it's coming back to bite Spain. The reforms are promised, but uh, there are reforms without reformers. The Security Exchange Commission president uh, is somebody who, just to give you one example, it's a po they appoint somebody who doesn't know anything about securities and is just a politician from the popular party. So you have this kind of continuing um, uh, kind of undermining of, 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 of apparent reforms. And the last uh, four weeks, I mean, I've been uh, outright depressing with a very substantial scandal in the Catalan and in the popular party. Um, so I will go back to that in a sec just, just briefly. I just want to say the housing inventory is very large, and the U.S. at the worst of the crisis was around uh, 10 months of supply. In Spain, it's maybe 100 months of supply. So, I mean, of course, we're not talking about the U.S. I mean, the U.S., you would, the proper comparison would be Arizona, Florida, etc., but just to say that it's a big, a big uh, excess supply. I'm going to go very quickly through the policy responses. We could talk a lot about Spain, but I want to be quick. The financial system, basically, it was very slow. The politics, as I was telling you, of the reform is such that the politics of the bubble is such that essentially undoing the whole Cajas thing would mean the whole political system would end with a lot of egg on their face. So essentially, there was a huge reluctance to clean the whole thing up. And at the end, um, all the debt is going to end up in the public, in the public sector budget. Um, there are three measures that have finally been taken. There's a bad bank. There's been a stress test by outside the firm because the Bank of Spain had lost credibility. There has been a bad bank. And there is a large recap uh, of all the banking sector. It was going to be the EU did give a lot of money. Spain took a, a small fraction of that. The thing is that the banking problems were relatively small by comparison to most previous crises. So it's kind of particularly bad and it speaks badly of the Spanish government that this has been left to fester and to, and to put in, in question the credibility of the country. The second axis is competitiveness. There's been a labor reform. Wages are coming down. Unit labor costs are coming down. But there is really nothing, zero. I mean, there's not even a discussion of what do you do with that generation that needs retraining. There is no money for retraining. Those guys are at home living with their parents. And uh, I, I think that's going to be a, a long-term issue. The third axis is the public debt. Just, I mean, you know, uh, is the debt going to be stabilized? So if you go back to my initial point, which is we have a good moment in the market, all the investment banks are recommending buy this debt, etc. And you think, you ask the guys who recommend to buy this debt, you say, oh, you're a trader, you're buying this debt, do you think it's going to stabilize? And they say, no. So, well, why do you think it's going? it should be bought? I mean, then the country is in a bad trajectory. Well, the European Central Bank is standing there, so you shouldn't stand in the way of the European Central Bank. Okay, that's, that's an argument, but let me tell you about the stabilization of the debt. So you think the debt is going to be around 100% of GDP. So basically, the debt is going to be... Uh, so in order to, to see if it's, if, it's, if it's been stabilized, what we need to do is to compare the interest rate with inflation rate and the growth and the primary deficit. The growth is bad. The inflation is relatively low. The primary deficit is... The primary surplus is not there. You would need a primary surplus maybe of 4% of GDP and Spain's at the primary deficit of minus 4. This is a deficit of 7% with 30 billion in interest payment. So it's not going to be stabilized. It's going to continue growing. Um, maybe that's fine. The country shouldn't just 
pull the, the, the brake back, but I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a tricky, it, it, it's a tricky issue. You could have another market panic where people start to worry. Maybe you think, well, 100, 110, 120, we can go to 120% of GDP like Italy. I think that would, be, that would be tricky. The good news is on the trade sector, basically there is now a current account balance. There is no deficit anymore. Uh, the, basically, the goods balance and the services balances have rebounded hugely. Uh, of course, in big part because internal demand is, 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 uh, is stable. This is the housing prices they came up today. Housing is falling at 10%. That number is 10% in nominal terms per year right now. So housing is really now. The housing correction is happening. This is inflation. This is the housing prices at minus 10%. It just came today. And I was looking at the economists this afternoon to see how much of the adjustment, to show you how much of the adjustment has happened. The black uh, number is Spain. So the housing prices are more or less uh, price, to price to rent, price to income, and real house prices all suggest that the a lot of the correction has happened, um, maybe another 20%, maybe another 30%. I don't know. 30% would be a big drop still. Uh, but it's happening. Correction is happening. Account balance is returning. So in some sense, if you forget about the deficit and you don't worry too much about unemployment, you could say, you know, the financial situation maybe is looking better. The way that this thing breaks now is it's a deep recession with a lot of unemployment. The, the, loan, the loans are still deteriorating. Um, and there's going to be a large fiscal contraction and a large financial contraction this year. So the, the financial contraction is, going, contraction is going to be minus 8%. Growth is going, credit growth is going to drop. Fiscal contraction, we don't know how big, but it's going to be there. And so the way this breaks, I think, is political. Okay, I think the way it works is political. The way that things actually turn around is um, this, the Europeans, basically, this is the strategy of the Europeans. Okay, think of it in game theoretical terms. What they're telling us, what they're telling Spain, and I will go in a second to the legacy debt issue, what they're telling Spain is you will only be rescued when you're at the edge of the precipice. Okay, so the equilibrium here is Spain is going to be here on the edge of the precipice, and when it falls, it will be given a hand, okay? And then it will just continue on the edge of the precipice. Now, that's a tricky game to play. Why, why does the game make sense for Germany? That minimizes how much money you have to put on the table if you forget about the deterioration, and gives the right incentives for Spain to continue doing reforms, okay? That's more or less the idea. Of course, the problem with working on the edge of the precipice is how much can people put up with? And of course, you have to ask a psychologist and not an economist for that. I have no idea, okay? I go there and I see people are kind of down and depressed and everything. I don't really know. I mean, some people are doing all right. It's kind of hard to tell how much people will, 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 uh, will stand. But there is one thing that is happening that is worrying, which is the Catalonian thing, okay? Uh, so I'm not, going to, I'm not going to argue whether Catalonia should be independent or not because, I, am, I mean, my opinion is as good as any. But it is true that the moment for both Catalonia to break out and um, for the UK to be considering breaking out is tricky. And the reason it's tricky is, um, first of all, you're going to renegotiate a deal without growth. And as we said at the start, politics without growth is a bad business. Okay? If I give you more, I'm going to have to pull it from somewhere. From Andalusia, which has 40% unemployment, from uh, Extremadura, from where? Okay? And if, it's, if there's no growth, it's basically zero sum. At the same time, uncertainty is basically what this crisis is all about. Okay? We don't know who's going to end up paying the debt, and that's why people are kind of scared and standing on their hands. 
if you introduce new uncertainty, which is, is Catalonia going to be in Spain? Are these things going to, to come to a head? Or how is it going to happen? That's, in my opinion, that's something that leads to increasing reluctance of investors to return. Um, think of England, okay? What is the configuration of England in 2008? Is England, Scotland are together, but inside the euro? Inside Europe, England alone, without Scotland, but outside of Europe? I mean, there are all these configurations. Spain has the same uncertainty. I don't think in a moment where we are really kind of struggling, by the way, with all that Spain, I've told you all the troubles of Spain, the UK's GDP has dropped by exactly the same as Spain since the start of the crisis, okay? So it's not like the UK has been doing better. So we are with this uncertainty. We have a lot of, we have a big debt overhang. Um, and we're saying, well, let's also add some constitutional uncertainty to that, and let's talk about the divorce terms. I don't think that's the moment, okay? Um, just to make a comment, since that's what happened today, I do, I do think that all these things do matter a lot. I don't think they are just, well, we continued in Europe, but everything will continue the same. One thing that the LSE has been suffering big time through has been all the changes in visa policies, and every time many of the students here probably have suffered that. Um, every time we recruit somebody who is under the European Union, we have to go through all this trouble. Same thing happens with students who are out of the European Union who only at the last minute discover that they actually can attend. Um, if we abandon the single market and the free circulation and people cannot be crossing the border and getting visas is compli a, compli a complication, that's going to be even worse. What we export as a university, let me be selfish, is a good that has to be consumed here in place. Okay? We cannot just export remotely. Maybe when we do these massive online open courses, that's going to change. But for the moment, we can. Um, and I think, I mean, honestly, I think the UK, I mean, I don't have any, any negative thought about Cameron's speech. It was a very good speech. And I think competitiveness and flexibility, all those things are, are good. But I do think that uh, the moment and the referendum are probably bad ideas and postponing the referendum as well. And the UK does have a lot of power. Look at what happened back in Union. They, are, they managed to get a double majority. The, the SMS, this, the new regulatory mechanism, cannot make decisions without a double majority in which the UK is actually... The UK is outside, but it decides on what they can do. Okay, so now what I want to finish up my, my time, I'm just, I'm just coming to the end of, of, of what, what I agree with, with Francesco, is basically telling you how... So, okay, so let me just make a point of where I think Spain is. I would wish I could say otherwise, but I think even with the interest rates coming down as they are, and even with investors coming back to where they're coming, I don't think Spain is viable at these interest rates. Okay? The debt has become too large. Too much of the private debt has been put into the public taxpayers. I also think that there is a big problem with unemployment and with the structural unemployment and with people who are unable to fit into today's labor markets at the current prices and the current wages, etc. Um, I don't think Spain is going to be able, is going to be, uh, at the growth rates that we can anticipate is going to be able to deal with, it, with the debt that it has incurred. I think that's true, and in the paper that I'm doing for Jonathan Gans Perspectives, we're looking at Greece and Portugal and Ireland as well. I think that, so I've, I've been reading a lot about these this other countries' uh, kind of institutional messes uh, lately, and I think that's kind of true for, 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 for them as well. I think um, a lot of what's happened has to do with the euro, has to do with a 10-year period in which kind of 
uh, the credit conditions were wrong, were too lax in part. I mean, you can say, well, it's great. You cannot complain. We gave you interest rates, negative interest rates to borrow. That's true, but that distorted a lot of allocations inside the countries. So I think Europe does need to do something. On the other hand, we have to be realistic, okay? More Europe is not what European citizens want, okay? Dutch citizens don't want to hear about, after they've seen what happened with corruption in, in, a, in the Popular Party, for example, uh, they are not going to want to say, oh, well, let's share more with these guys, okay? That's not something that inspires a lot of confidence. So what we need to do is to say, okay, how much can we do without going too far, without, while bringing people with us, okay? And let me remind you that we said the problems were the lack of a banking backstop, the banking sovereign loop, the fiscal contagion, somebody, some, some, a country has to suddenly uh, look after the banks, then suddenly uh, everything is kind of... Uh, uh, so imagine Spain having to pay this 40 billion in unemployment insurance per year, then suddenly the bonds that the banks have are going to deteriorate. The banks are also going to be in trouble. The, sovereign, the, the, the loop that I was telling you before about, and the difficulty that these countries have to rebalance inside the EU. Um, so the document that INE did uh, over the summer was about restoring faith in the euro area, stabilizing interest rates, trying to reduce the debt, and address these structural flaws. And as I said, uh, we're trying to do the minimum. So here's what we came up with. There is a legacy problem. And the legacy problem is what I've been telling you about. Okay? The legacy problem is we've accumulated a lot of debt. Um, we've made wrong decisions on banking, on human capital, etc., given the wrong prices. Okay? And I think by now we all agree that that was a bubble. I, some of my micro-colleagues might, might disagree in the discussion, and we'll, 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 we'll discuss it. Um, so given those wrong prices, then there is now a legacy situation that is going to strangle those countries. And that legacy situation has to be resolved together. At the same time, and that's the insight on which we build this report, at the same time, you don't need sharing into the future. Okay? There is a lot of economists, and maybe some of the discussions, maybe some of you who say the only monetary union that works is one with a full fiscal union. If that's what you believe, forget it. I don't think that's going to happen. Okay? So let's try to build something that we think is feasible and that doesn't require such a gigantic step for European citizens, such as in the future you have an open-ended commitment to bail out the Greeks. I don't think European citizens are going to be buying that. Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. I mean, me personally, I would like it. I just don't think that's something that's going to happen. And I also don't think it's necessarily, necessarily actually strictly necessary. Okay? Um, so, on the other hand, I do think the cost of a breakup is too high. I mean, many of you are probably going to tell me, look, if the situation is so desperate, you guys gotta get, gotta get out of the EU. I don't think so. From the institutional perspective, if you get this system that has developed over the last 10 years, 10 years of, of corrupt politician, developer, whatever, if you're given the power to print their own money, that's not gonna end up in a very good place, all right? Um, so, I don't think, I mean, I don't think going the Argentinian route is good for Spain. To be honest, I don't think it was good for Argentina either. But that's not the discussion we want to have right now. Uh, the, and, okay, so what's the path? Is the path euro bonds? As I said, I think minimal sharing. I think euro bonds are politically not feasible, but I also don't think are economically necessary. So what we think is you need enough banking union to stop all this sovereign banking loop into the long run. 
and you need some some solving for the pre-existing debt for the legacy debt. Okay, so legacy problems must be solved together. I think that's fair. I mean, could I convince Merkel of that? I don't know, but we could try. Okay, I think it would be fair uh, to say, look. The reason Spain, Spain started the crisis with 45% debt to GDP, 40% debt to GDP. So all of the rest has been accumulated over the last five years, in a big part, saving the banks and saving and the cajas. And saving the cajas means, you know, there is a big loan from the Bayerische Landesbank that the caja pays back in fully. All the senior bonds have been paid back. And then the caja is like, oh, I don't have any money, so the state has to put it. So the taxpayer is, in a way, bailing up the German taxpayer. So in a sense... It's only fair that that is, that is shared. It's also necessary because, as I said, the legacy problem is going to strangle Spain. I don't think that trajectory that I drew before, 100% of debt of GDP, 2% inflation, uh, zero growth, and 4.5% average interest rate on the debt, I don't think that trajectory looks like folding. But um, there are some really good economists in the panel and some experts on Spain that I see from investment banks and everything, and maybe they are there. I would love to hear a more optimistic view if there is. Um, you can do it while keeping good incentives. Okay, and that's. I mean, I realize like Germans are going to say, "Look, yeah, we bail you out now, and then you know, then the next time is over to the same thing." Okay, I understand that, and I think you can do better. Okay, and the way you can do better is, um, so the measures are going to be the partial recapitalization and as a short-run measure without a long-term consequence. Okay. Is going to involve recapitalizing the banks, doing some of the excess debt, and particularly doing something for growth. Okay, something for unemployment insurance, something for retraining, something that's going to get this labor market moving. Okay, I don't think Spain right now has the ability to deal with that, and I don't think that's going to be such an expensive investment. If you do the plans well designed, um, you have good Swedish active labor market policy experts design start to get people moving, I think you could actually do much better than what's happening now, because literally nothing is being done. So it has to be committed to limited in time and limited in cost. Um, basically, the proposal we, we make, as I told you, there are three people in the, in the, in the group who are experts from the advisors of, of the Ge Council of Economic Advisors of Germany. Um, is we take on this Wiseman proposal from them, which essentially says the debt below, beyond 60% is going to be mutualized. All the rest is going to pay, or it's going to be much jointly guaranteed. There's no say mutualized. And it's going to be financed uh, through an adjustment, medium-term adjustment package that is going to force people to put uh, continuously some money into the common pot. Um, and we think that should be supported by ESM banking license and the ECB purchases, which the ECB did announce, it did announce, uh, and I will talk about the OMT in a second. So the ECB on September 7th took on some of our suggestions. I don't think they, it was because of our suggestions. They took them on. Although Martin Wolf did give Paul, Paul de Graue the credit for, uh, for having persuaded the ECB that there was actually a multiple equilibrium problem and there was actually some scope for reassuring people that the central bank was, was, was in place. Um, so the idea is... In order to improve the transmission monetary policy, they would never say they're going to bail out any country, of course. They are going to intervene with countries with good standing. That's more or less what our document asks for. So that's very, very good news. Um, the legacy debt, what's the situation? The 29th of June decision by the European Union was extremely promising. 
that it seemed that the banking bailout of Spain and maybe of Ireland would be jointly done by the European Union. Um, over the course of September, um, there were declarations by the three main creditors, by German Parliament and by Jens Bredman, saying that um, there is absolutely no, absolutely no way any legacy debt is going to be paid. You are on your own with the past. We'll talk about the future. But it is the past which is the big stone hanging on this country's, uh, on this country's next. Um, I honestly thought the summit language said that they were going to share the banking debt. They specifically talk about the sovereign banking loop. Uh, they say that it's imperative to break the vicious circle between banks and sovereigns and that there are going to be a, so a supervisory mechanism and that they examine their situation and that they are going to try to do uh, a uh, joint financial support to the recapitalization of the banking sector. Now, when it came to actually doing it, they said it didn't write said what we all read or what many people read it said. In terms of the long-term solution, um, I told you what the three issues that I thought were there. Um, these are the elements that we think are necessary, and I put a little traffic light to tell you where do I think they are. So, banking union to stop diabolic loop between banks and sovereigns, it is on its way, but this is not going to do anything to solve the current crisis, okay? It's going to, basically, I told you, I'll tell you in a second, there's a single supervisory mechanism. It's going to be something for the future, but at this point, it's not going to solve the vast banking pr problems. Joint borrowing tool, there is nothing on that, and I tell you how, I can, how we can think about it without doing euro bonds. Financial reform, sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, some fiscal rules. Now, on the banking union, there were very good news. I think it was the first time the European leaders promised something and did it on time, okay? They agreed on the 13th and 14th of December before the deadline of the 2012 uh, 31st on a banking union. Basically, there will be a single supervisor for all banks in the Eurozone plus five countries. So the United Kingdom didn't participate, but uh, Denmark and Poland, I think, well, it's, it's, I think there will be. Um, there will be a unique resolution regime, and this is the ECB will help big time. What does a unique resolution regime mean? There's a bank, a bad bank, the ECB will say, you're going to close tomorrow, okay? And the ECB will have the authority. It will not have to go through regulatory uh, intermediaries. And there will be direct bank recaps from the ESM, which is a complement of that uh, regulatory regime by July 2013. So the European Union is moving. What is not happening is any sharing of passback lands loans or any Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation type arrangement where all the deposits in Europe are guaranteed. So you still will have a banking sovereign loop as long as you don't have an FDIC because the citizens of one state will be scared. The banks, will, the states will have to stand behind the banks and that will put at risk the solvency of the state. So banking union at least is advancing. Um, as I said, no European FDIC, uh, not a systemic levy yet to fund this resolution, but we'll see what happens this year. And there is no... Uh, we thought it's needed a fiscal backstop, some joint insurance for big banking crisis, that a big banking crisis doesn't sink the state. Um, if the banks in Arizona go under, the United States starts behind those banks. It's not the Arizona government which has to be behind them. If the Arizona government has to, had to be behind them, Arizona today would be bankrupt because Arizona, as you know, had a biggest bu bigger bubble than Spain. Uh, so did New Mexico, Nevada, and Florida. In all those cases... The unemployment insurance transfers came from the general budget, and the money to save the banks came from the general budget, which means you don't have suddenly this spiral down. Um, the euro bonds, as I told you, 
are probably not necessary. What this Euronomics group with which I've been working this year with Marcus Runemeyer, Dimitri Vajons from LSE, Stan Weinberg from NYU, uh, and, and some other guys, what we thought as a suggestion, and I think it has some traction, we presented the IMF, we presented the European Commission, in the EBRD, I mean, we presented in, in many places, and it does have some traction. We presented the Italian Treasury and uh, many other treasuries. Um, people kind of think it's maybe all right, but they're scared. I mean, I'll tell you in a sec. Basic, the basic idea is this. First, let me tell you to get the word out of the way because it's an unpopular word. It's a securitized solution, securitization. Okay? The European Debt Agency buys the debt of the member states. It doesn't jointly guarantee it. What happens is the senior tranche, there's a senior tranche and a junior tranche of the debt. The first losses on that, so you buy the debt, the EDA buys the debt, the European Debt Agency, and issues a bond. And that bond is called a senior bond or a junior bond. If you have the senior bond, you are promised that you will not absorb losses until a very large amount of losses have taken place. If you, absorb, if you take the junior lot, uh, bond, you actually take maybe a 10% interest rate and you absorb all the losses on the debt. But there's no guarantee. Okay? Maybe at the start it will be a little guarantee. It's not joint. So if it's not joint, what does it do? It's a joint asset, but it doesn't involve joint liability. Okay? So um, that's the European Agency balance sheet. It holds the sovereign bonds that it has bought, and it issues this debt, which is the European senior bonds and the European junior bonds, and people who have some risk profile, they want something very safe, they take a senior bond, uh, and people who have uh, uh, more risk appetite, they take a junior bond. I honestly think this is the only solution that has any hope right now, because I don't think Europe is going to uh, go for a common debt instrument. Although there were some points in the last year when it seemed like treasuries, short, very, very short-dated paper maybe would be possible, but I don't think that's anymore in the case. Why do we think it breaks the diabolic loop? Because the banks, you change the regulation. The banks don't get to accumulate all this country debt. They get to accumulate only the European senior debt. Um, and you're going to give higher risk weights to all the, all the country debt. So that means the banks are not exposed to the sovereigns. And you break this situation where if people want to be safe, they sell Italy and Spain and they move to German debt. Here, if you want to be safe, you sell junior and you buy senior. But that is favoring as much all the countries. It's not, Germany is not collecting the risk premium. Everybody is collecting the risk premium together. Um, and I also think it will do something for the market in the short term because it's going to help with the new equilibrium and it's going to help with the buying all the new short-term paper, all the new debt that has to be bought. Okay, so I'm done. I think I said 25 is 28, so you'll be giving me a... So let me tell you where we th I think we are. I think there is a way forward for Europe. I think it doesn't, it cannot involve a, 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 a fiscal union and a political union. I don't think anyone in Europe is prepared for that. Maybe the Germans are talking, about, uh, they have some constitutional talks about moving forward. I don't think they're there. Um, I think most of your countries aren't at all. I think you can do a lot with limited catastrophic insurance for the uh, banking crisis, some assumption of the past liability for some of the legacy debt, the actions of the European Central Bank that the European Central Bank has promised for countries in good standing coming in and buying, that, that Paul has been, has been pushing and that other documents pushed as well. 
first point. And second point, I really do believe, and as I told you, it pains me to say, there is a very serious governance. I didn't believe this four years ago, okay? Five years ago. There's a very serious governance problem in all those four or five peripheral countries. And I think they also need help. Um, and if you ask me why do I think Spain should go into a rescue program, I actually do think it should go into a rescue program. And I think the reason is I think we need to import some institutions from outside. I mean, I know there's a lot of skepticism in developing and many other fields where you can import institutions. But I think uh, in terms of unemployment, in terms of, of, of creating new business, in many, many issues, uh, Spain has a really vibrant, dynamic private sector. It works very well. Uh, companies like Telefonica, like Zara, like Margo, like Iberdrola, I mean, they're doing well. They compete internationally, etc. It has a really very, and I think it's true for Italy as well. It has a very problematic public sector. Probably the answer Francesco will give me is, well, if it's your problem, you have to solve it yourselves. You cannot expect the Germans to solve it for you. But I think it's unlikely we can solve it ourselves. Thanks very much, and I look forward to this question. I think we have to take those or not? Or are they here? Oh, no. Where do I sit, Francesco? Here on your side? Yeah, why don't you stay on the, on the street? On the street. All right. Okay, thank you, uh, Luis, for a great presentation. Uh, Paul de Howe's name has come up multiple times uh, in the presentation, so it's only natural that I ask him to uh, go first. I had hoped I could talk the last. It's always more comfortable, but that's fine. No, I, I, I take up the, the challenge. And, and first of all, I, I want to say how, how interesting I found um, Luis' presentation, and, and what struck me most is this well, most, one of the things that struck me so much is how when a country is in a bubble, it affects institutions, it corrupts institutions, right? And Spain is um, an interesting but also sad example of this. And it is all so absent from our textbooks, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> um, first of all, in, in standard macro textbooks, Bubbles don't exist because rational agents would never allow this to happen. Uh, <clears throat> but then when you think about it, once, once you get into bubbles, even our, our macro models that allow for bubbles don't have this dimension that you, you can distort incentives so much that you will actually destroy institutions or corrupt institutions. And that, I think, is a very powerful analysis, right? A very powerful um, idea that um, I must say I, I, I was very much impressed with. Um, one question I have, since you, you said you, you have been looking also at other countries, uh, is the following. What makes Spain different from Ireland? Um, I, I hear from many people that in Ireland things are going to go in the right direction. Um, it, it, it looks like they have bottomed out and, and, and things will be fine. And when I hear your story about Spain, I'm so depressed 
uh, that uh, th there is no such thing. So what is it different? The, the antecedents were very much similar, right? I mean, uh, an excessive boom, bubble, um, but somehow things evolve differently. Did, did you have in Ireland this, the same kind of um, corruption of institutions? Maybe that's where the difference is, but I don't know enough about it. One issue that you, you have not touched upon that may be important when one compares Ireland versus Spain, that is that when you go through an austerity program, uh, you, you need social consensus in, in a society that austerity in the end is good for you. But that you can only get, it seems to me, if um, there is a, a sense that the burden is shared by everybody, right? that it is somehow fair, that rich and poor, and, and hopefully the rich more than the poor, share in austerity. Then that seems to me to be a precondition for a successful austerity. Is that the difference between Ireland and Spain, that in Ireland you have more of this sense that, yes, we, we have to go to it, it's painful, but we accept it, because we have a sense that it's shared by the whole society. And is that present in Spain? That's a question I'm asking you, because you, you have been comparing these countries, and I would be very much interested to hear your view on this. So that's, that's on the diagnosis. Then let me say, because we are supposed to talk no more than five minutes, right? yeah, but, uh, but uh, let I'll me give you a, you a few things about um, the, how to get out of this, right? And in that we, we were together in this group. There was in that report one line saying that some of the participants did not agree with everything, right? Uh, and I was some of the participants, right? But, but I, signed, I signed the document, and my name does not appear in the, in the footnote of the sum, right? Uh, and, and anyway, but um, on the whole, I, 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 I like the idea, right? Uh, the, the separation of the legacy issue from the steady state solution, that the new institutions you want to build. I like the idea, but at the same time, I have a problem also, because there is a, a time consistency problem or a credibility problem here, right? Here you say, bygones are bygones. We, we have been fools in the past. Let's now, solve this now. Right? And you say, and rightly so, both the creditors and the debtors have been reckless. And, and I, I think we should stress that idea. It's not only the Spaniards and the Portuguese that have been reckless debtors, but the creditors have been equally reckless. It takes two to tango, right? So, and, and for every foolish debtor, there is a foolish creditor. So that's a very strong argument to say, let's solve the legacy problem together. But, of course, the world is going to go on, and there will be future crises, and are we going to say then after the next crisis that undoubtedly will occur, we have a legacy problem. Let's solve this legacy problem jointly. Of course you say, well, we'll have the right incentives to avoid this, but history is there to say that these things have a tendency to repeat themselves. So then if, and, and that weakens a little bit the case for that approach and strengthens the case 
to have more permanent solutions that not just let's try to clean up the mess from the past and then we will in a minimalist way try to create new institutions. So although I, I, I feel sympathy for the, the argument, I also see the weakness of that argument and, 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 and so that you may in the end be forced to go much more forward in, tense, in terms of political unification. You can, you can postpone it for a while, but at some point, at some point, you have to make a, a big step forwards. I know today it's not possible for all kinds of reasons, political, there's no consensus to do that, but let's not fool ourselves, right? Um, a monetary union without some quite <coughs> invasive political unification, I don't think, can survive. That's my view. And that's why I think that, um, although I understand that you say we, we, don't, we don't really want permanent mutualization of debt, in the end we will be forced to do so. I, I don't think we can, we can avoid this. I, but I understand the strategy of this report, which is that today, unfortunately, we cannot, so let's try to take a minimalist view. And that I, I fully subscribe. But we should keep in mind that this is only temporary. So when you say this is the steady state, no, it's not going to be the steady state. We will have to move forward. And, and, but let's try now. So that, that's, that's why I'm saying yes, that's the way to do it now. But let's not forget that in the end we will have to go much further. Bowder, you, you and I are the macroeconomists here. But mm -hmm. I, I haven't been at a single... Uh, a panel in the last two or three years where macroeconomists have not come to an, under attack. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I haven't, I don't think I've been guilty of that, I hope. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> ashamed. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I would like to stress that the, uh, the crisis in the euro area is in the first place a financial crisis. I mean, it's not a common currency crisis. I think a lot of uh, the things that uh, Louis mentioned would have happened without the euro um, the UK is doing worse than several countries in the euro area, like you know, Louis uh, mentioned. Now, it's true is, is that the, you know, the, ability, the, bil sorry, the ability to depreciate right, gives, at least in theory, the country with an uh, additional channel through which it can uh, adjust. But this is not a miracle medicine. I mean, there's not overwhelming evidence that exchange rates always adjust the way you hope they adjust, and even if they adjust the way you hope they adjust, is that my empirical evidence shows is that the responses of trade flows are actually quite limited. Right, so, sure, it's nice in some cases if you have that additional channel, but um, it's not that great. Well, I mean, just imagine is that right now is that Spain would have had flexible exchange rate, would have had uh, the peseta, and suppose it would have done what we thought it would do, is is depreciate, uh, but it would not have been able to issue debt in its own currency. I mean, then the problems could have been a lot worse and would have been a lot worse for Spanish importers and Spain is still importing quite a bit. So I think is, is that if we want to you know, deal effectively with the problems in the euro, both the way they are now and going forward, I think the key thing is still fixing the problems in the financial sector. And um, 
I mean, the banking union is going to be an important step. I mean, we had a green light there, but I think it's just that if you think of what's happening in the financial sector overall, I think there's still a big red light. At FOXEU, I'm moderating a debate on uh, reform in the financial sector, and there's several, you know, people who know a lot more about the financial sector than I do are contributing, and the consensus seems to be is, is that both in terms of what's actually already implemented and what's being proposed is not nearly enough to what's needed to, uh, to get a safe financial sector. So I think that e even if you, know, if you focus on what's going to happen to the euro area, I think what's happened to the financial sector has got to be the, the, our, our first priority. Um, okay, I want to say a little bit about you know, fiscal policy. I mean, if we think about going forward, it's got to be important that fiscal policy is not going to be pro-cyclical, which it often is forced to, uh, to do now. Is that um, having pro-cyclical fiscal policy, so having austerity measures implemented in a recession, is not only you know, uh, bad economics, it's politically it also may you know, not, not, not be feasible. And I think it's particularly bad what you see now is, is that you have these unforeseen shocks which are not caused by bad policy, and then governments respond to that by having more austerity. It's just, it cannot be the, the right thing to do. It creates uh, uncertainties. You, you don't know what, what's happening. Now, of course, to make that credible, to let countries be you know, more counter-cyclical with their fiscal policies is that they've got to behave better during good times. And so our notion of you know, what... What is an appropriate debt-to-GDP ratio? What's the surplus during you know, booms may change? We sort of thought is that 60% debt-to-GDP is sort of something to aim for. But maybe that's an insane number. Maybe we should aim for 20. And, I mean, if we would have started the, you know, the crisis having, on average, 20% debt-to-GDP, this is that you know, life would have been a lot better now. So finally, I, I want to... You know, uh, repeat what, uh, what Paul said about uh, the, the, the moral hazard. I, th I think we've got to realize, no matter what system we're going to have, you know, fixed exchange rate, common currency area, or flexible exchange rate, uh, and no matter how we're going to structure it, this is that investors will be sometimes over-optimistic or over-pessimistic, and so we are going to get crises, and we are going to get bubbles, and actually I think this is that even you know, rational agents allow for bubbles. You can write down mobile models where everybody is rational, you're gonna, still going to have bubbles. So we're going to see those things again no matter what we do, no matter you know, what kind of solution we're going to have. So the best that we can do is actually try to you know, reduce the, uh, the chance of them happening. Now, Louise had a you know, nice sort of uh, set of uh, examples on how we can limit the damage if they, if they happen. Uh, you know, what the ESM can do, what uh, the, the ECB can, can do. But the most important thing I think got to be is, is that, that we have the, the rules in place such that the individuals who are over-optimistic, who take all those extra risks, don't have the incentive to do that. And if they do, is it that you know, they actually will be uh, su sufficiently punished. And um, I mean, some of you guys, I'm sure, know the, the story, but... Um, so when they uh, started to install airbags in cars, you would think it's a great thing because, you know, if you crash, then, you know, the damage is going to be less. And, you know, a lot of what Louis says, you know, we talked about ways in which if, the, you know, the economy crashes, then how can you reduce the damage? But what <coughs> happened when they 
you know, installed airbags is, is that car drivers started to take more risks, which actually was really bad for pedestrians. And it, <coughs> you, you could have done another change in the car. You could have put a dagger in front of the driver on the car wheel, and <laughs> they, they, they would have, you know, dri- 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 driven in a much safer way. <laughs> And so we, we shouldn't all only think is that how do we limit the damage if an accident occurs. We, you know, the, the main thing got to be is you know, how, how do we behave, make sure that people behave better. John, you're the British economist on the panel, and today was a big day for uh, the UK relationship with Europe. I'm sure people want to hear your reactions on that. And also, of course, yes, okay, so I'm, I'm definitely going to say that. I'm going to make two small comments and come back to that point at the end. Because although, as I, yeah, you're correct, although I have a very Dutch, I have a Dutch surname, you know, as I like to say, I'm the son of an African immigrant. It's true, I was probably the only Brit born here, so I have to, I'll make a few, a few statements about that to get Louis' response. I want to just reiterate in some sense what, what the last two speakers have said. I mean, the way I see the global problem, the fundamental global problem that we've had over the last few years is, as Fred said, huge financial shock, global financial shock, followed by uh, a, you know, a policy response which um, initially was very good, you know, trying to deal with that problem with the banks and in many countries a stimulus program, but then very quickly going into a kind of a fiscal policy stance which has been, um, you know, at best not particularly pro-stimulus and at worst like in our country uh, very strongly um, into an austerity position and that pro-stimulus policy has led us into a position where we have generally very high unemployment rates and output much you know very far below our potential so on top of that that kind of general problem of lack of demand we have what's happening in Europe which is what Luis was focusing on which was in, in the Eurozone, there was this kind of you know, strong imbalance between North and South, and that in response to the shock, it was very difficult to do the standard things because we're in a single monetary union. You can't depreciate your exchange rate. There isn't fiscal transfers, as there is, in the, in, as Luis was saying, in, in the US. So that's the kind of critical problem. And the current path the Eurozone is on, I mean, it's better than it was maybe 12 months ago, you know, is really unsustainable because of exactly the, the problems that Louise was saying, that you know, Spain, Portugal, these other countries, as the um, problem of debt builds up, the uh, plan A is to continue with austere f- fiscal policies, which builds up the deficit, which builds up debt, which leads to more unemployment. That's not sustainable. The only way out of that is to, I think, as Louise was saying, to separate the kind of legacy problem from the steady-state problem. Without that, you know, I, I, I really can't see a, you know, a solution to that. Maybe politically that is infeasible. I hope it's not infeasible. I think we've had lots of suggestions of ways out of that. But it, there needs to be a recognition in, uh, in Northern Europe that the legacy problem has to be somehow decoupled from the, from the steady state. And without some type of albeit imperfect solution to that, you know, we're going to continue these countries which, like Greece and Spain and Portugal, are going to continue in this in very bad position for, for long periods of time and you know, ultimately may lead to, to break-up. Uh, second comment, um, I, I also... Sh- I mean, I, you know, the analysis of how Spain got into the problem with the property boom and that being linked to bad institutions and the political... the chaos, it sounds right, but the island thing makes me think, is that completely right? Because 
In Ireland, the, you know, there was three big banks. They didn't seem to have the same degree of political corruption as uh, problems as, as the Caius have. So it, it seems to me this is maybe, you know, and there were also problems of, of overlending in, in the United States as well. So it, it doesn't seem quite that's the full story of what went wrong in the kind of property boom section of, of Spain. So I wonder whether you could, you must have, you know, we, we talked about that, so I'd like you to comment on that. And where I'm going to end up, of course, is where we heard the speech today from the Prime Minister. Um, you were very nice to the Prime Minister. Uh, <laughs> I think too nice. I actually, I actually think this has been one of the, uh, I think in retrospect this will be one of the kind of saddest days in the kind of British political history. Actually, recent British history. Because I think it's, it's, it's like, you know, the European family is in trouble. <laughs> we know that. And, you know, when family is in trouble, we tend to, you know, that's, that's often when divorces take place and things break up. And that's, of course, the worst time to, to take such an action. And I think what the, the failure, the political failure in this country is to honestly articulate the great benefits that being in the European Union has, has meant for our country. And in particular, uh, over the last 30 years, the growth of the single market, which has increased competition of the largest Markets actually in the world, you know, GDP is on like 17 trillion dollars. That's bigger than the United States. Access to that market is incredibly important. The competition from that market is incredible. Has been an incredible benefit to the UK. Um, and you know, I think that that hasn't been articulated and hasn't hasn't been hasn't hasn't been uh, realised. And there's this notion that somehow we can get access to that market being outside the European Union, like Norway or Switzerland, is complete um, you know political la la land. That's absolutely, there's no way that, you know, France or other countries are going to allow Britain to have full access to the common market um, with the, uh, the kind of, I mean, Norway gets away with it because they have regulations which are much tougher than uh, the rest of the common market on environment and employment. Um, and, you know, the Swiss will never get the deal they currently have. So I think, I think the, um, the, 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 the basic problem that we're now in is we're sloping towards exit in this country. Um, that we're creating a huge degree of policy and political uncertainty. And as we've learned, I mean, from economic research over the last 10 or 15 years, uncertainty can be a huge drag on, on growth, both because it discourages investment and also because it makes the reallocation of assets between good and bad projects, low productivity and high productivity firms, it makes that much worse. Um, you know, you, you end up with this kind of rabbit caught in the headlights effect where people are not investing, not hiring because of this. And that, I think, is, is um, extremely risky. If you're a multinational firm thinking about where to invest, are you going to invest in a country that you think is going to be outside the largest trading block in the world? Um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, this is, um, I hope I'm wrong, but I'd like to get Louise's uh, views on this. But I think the, the, the trajectory we've now put ourselves in towards a referendum is going to uh, lead to an extremely uh, bad outcome for the UK. So um, that's my kind of question and comment, I guess. Luis, I will give you a chance of responding to these comments. I, I'm, I'm keen on particularly rephrasing and, and, and adding to, to Paul's question about the credibility. You know? So you, you, you trace back the crisis to these exceptionally low interest rates. So what is it in the mechanism you're devising that will keep spreads from collapsing again uh, after the legacy problems are 
are resolved and and because that, that's that's the problem you have point, pinpointed that this disappearance of spreads between between different countries. So, so what is it in this new mechanism that will will keep spreads from 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 disappearing? Thanks, Francesco. I, I am keen to hear any more comments you have, actually. So if you want, uh, is there, uh, can you also kind of make a more product? We'll talk about them in the dinner. Okay. Um, so let me uh, start with um, the Irish. Uh, so I'll start with Paul and then go to Gauter and then, and then uh, so do it in chronological order. Thanks a lot for your comments. Um, what was the difference with the way Ireland... Uh, so Paul asked about Ireland after the crisis and John asked for Ireland before the crisis. Let me say after the crisis. Ireland has this tradition of uh, kind of, let me call them truth and reconciliation reports. Okay? So they just kind of look at their faults and uh, tear themselves apart and throw <laughs> up. Uh, they've done a really extensive and very careful report into their financial crisis and the Anglo-Irish uh, disaster. And they've done a lot of reports on all the corruption scandals, on every real estate thing. Anglo-Irish is as bad as the Spanish guy, in every sense. Everything from corruption to, like, completely just outrageously crazy laws. And the institutional deterioration has happened as well. Over the course of the first four or five years of the 2000s, Ireland was lowering taxes on real estate, lowering taxes, putting, uh, lowering mortgage uh, um, increasing mortgage deductibility, they were doing everything they could to put more gas on the fire. There was really a very clear sense of a commingling of the uh, real estate, the banking, and the political sector. Now, was the, the big, big mistake of Ireland, the big decision that was mistaken, was this big decision to bail out, to cover every single debt that the Irish financial system had undertaken from deposits to warning debt would be taken over by the state. That decision in 2008 was probably not correct. I don't think it was taken because Anglo-Irish guys were pressuring the politicians to do it. I think it was probably taken because the politicians were confused. Uh, so and that was the decision that, that sank Ireland. I mean, and also because the Americans and the Germans and the Bundesbank and the ECB were putting massive pressure on Ireland. But I do think there was a big problem, and I do think the Irish have actually done a lot of progress in rooting out the problems, putting it in the light, solving things, a lot of things that Spain is really behind. I mean, Spain, the, the big thing with Spain's uh, answer to the crisis is how slow it has been. The thing is, I mean, at the end of the day, the banking bailout cost 40 billion, okay? 40 billion, I mean, 4% of the GDP, that would be a very cheap financial crisis. I mean, there's been other loans that were given before, maybe 8% of GDP. If we had been put in 2007, 2008, with Spain's debt, actually, voucher, Spain's debt was very, very low. I don't remember the exact number. Um, Andrew, do you remember how 40. much it was at the lowest point? It was at 35, 40. was it 40? 40 or so. 40%, yeah. I, that was my, my memory as well. So 40%, I mean, it's not bad. I mean... Um, Ireland was 25 or 20 or so. Yeah. So, so, uh, so how the two countries with the lowest debt GDP ratio got in the worst trouble. But because how do you know, not true what you said. How do you know 40 is, is no, not, not too agree, bad? I agree. But it looks I mean, pretty good. I mean, even by your criterion of sex, it's not, a good, it's not good enough. They look pretty good. I agree yeah. that it, it should have been much lower because all of this revenue was bubble revenue. It wasn't real revenue. Um, so... Um, the credibility issue that Francesco and, and Paul and everybody has pointed out. I mean, they are completely right, okay? I kind of, 
do something wrong, I go to my mama and I say, oh, no, 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 let me do it again, please, 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 let me go, and then I do it again, right? <laughs> That's how it sounds, okay? Mama Merkel, please, please, give me the money, we promise it's just legacy, it's not for the future, all right? I understand that, and you're right, there is a risk. Here's the solution. This um, is this idea, without joint liability. They actually rely on the no bailout promise. Okay, we are going to try to enforce the original Maastricht Treaty promise, which is if Portugal has debt, it's on our own. Okay, there is junior debt, there is senior debt in the package. The first losses are absorbed by the investors. The investors know they bought junior debt. Now it's credible because the banks are not going to hold this stuff. The banks are going to hold the European senior debt. And if this junior debt is bad, they are holding the losses. That means they're going to monitor Portugal. They're not going to think that Portugal is going to be rescued. And that means that Portugal is going to pay a differential. And I don't think the spreads are going to compress as much. Um, so I do think that we preserve the market incentives in a situation where there is no joint liability. Now, Francesco might answer, Luis, at the end of the day, the market will believe there's joint liability. The market will believe that if you save the legacy once, you save the legacy again. I think that you could avoid it. I think you could avoid it with this securitized solution where you're really saying, look, you are buying a high-risk asset, you're getting 10% interest rate on it, you're on your own if Portugal agrees on whatever defaults in the near future. That's the way that the solution does hopefully hold together. Now, Wouter says, and now I'm passing to Wouter, to Wouter's point. Wouter says, look, Spain and Ireland could have been in the same mess without the euro. And I think it's right. They could have been in the same mess. I do think that if you look at Ireland, I mean, the compression of the interest rates was really massive, okay? The differential between the Spanish rate and the Greek rate, in the German rate in 2004 was zero, okay? With Greece, it was 16 basis points, 0.16% risk premium for Greece. I mean, who on earth was smart enough to do that? So I don't think it would have gone to the same extent. There would have been a differential. So on the run-up, it would have been such a huge bubble. People would have been more worried. On the round-down, we wouldn't have the sovereign banking loop to the same extent. I think um, a country that can be a lender of last resort, that can credibly promise to bear their banks, doesn't go... And a country that can credibly... And hopefully, you don't need to bail some of those banks and you can let them drop, which Ireland, I think, probably would have done without the European pressure, but you, it's hard to know. So a lot of this debt comes from pressure of the European Union to bail the entire financial system, and maybe some of it wouldn't have happened. Thirdly, the whole sovereign banking loop, I don't think would have been as pronounced if the states had, been, had had the ability to finance themselves. So when Paul Dechrau wrote this article that I was in these pieces, and they are based on some research and on this book in, in the Union, he actually was identifying something that very much looked at the Asian crisis, and a big element of that was the insurance, the moral hazard the voter is talking about, that comes from everybody believing they will be bailed out by it. And then it was quasi-fixed exchange rate. Here is fixed exchange rate. You'll be bailed out by Germany. I think without that promise, without that moral hazard, it wouldn't have just run out as much out of control. But I completely agree with him. It is a financial crisis. It's not a micro-crisis. And my first four slides were titled A Crisis of Governance. What we have is really a financial crisis that has been, to a large extent, kind of, there's a cross derivative between a financial crisis and weak institutions. That takes me to, to John's questions, uh, which were about 
the global financial crisis happened, Ireland happened, how can the Cajas be so important? And I mean, I can see, I can see the, the, the concern. I really do believe that the Landesbanken that invested in all the German, in all the U.S. Uh, S dot 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 were badly governed. The Bayerischer Landesbank and the other ones that were in so much trouble. I think that there was a big governance problem with the sovereign guarantee on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I do believe that uh, the programs, politically motivated programs that uh, Ragurajan in his uh, fault lines identifies as being crucial, and I know Pro Krugman is, is furious about this, but it's being <laughs> crucial in channeling all that extra credit to the supermarket market. I think they did have a lot to do. So I do think that the financial crises in Indonesia, in in, 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 the, in, the, in the Southeast Asian did have this cross derivative between gigantic capital mobility with quasi-fixed exchange rate with bad governance. And I do think that that has happened in Europe. And I mean, the UK, did it have bad governance of the same kind? Maybe not of the same kind. But I do think we've all heard the FSA talk about light touch. And we all know that the UK was looking for a competitive advantage by letting the banks do whatever they wanted. The whale at Morgan Stanley has happened in the UK, you know. Every single day, you know where the a, a, um, with the, um, the insurance, I, I, how is it escaping? AIG? AIG. AIG, FP, the AIG financial products, you know where it was. These are the guys who were writing the entire credit default swaps on the entire mortgage market in the US. You know where they based? They were based on variable. Okay? So I do think the UK also had a governance problem uh, in, the, in the financial sector. So I do think these financial crises tend to be too much capital mobility too fast in an environment. You, put, you think of the oil traveling at high pressure through a pipeline and the pipeline is going to explode where the little rusting places are, right? And that's the governance. Okay? You can put all this capital mobility in a situation where all the institutions are solid and everything, but if any governance faults are there, that's where it's going to explode. And I do think there were substantial governance faults interacting with the financial mobility in all these markets. Now, John uh, finished up talking about the UK Prime Minister. I think one thing that struck me of John's description, which I completely agree with, is this point about La La Land. So, the whole Catalonia independence thing, so there are two views on this, and I have close friends and close LSE colleagues who are very much for Catalonia independent, and I think that's fine. Okay, I do not think it's, it's the best moment, but I think that's a, that's a fair enough opinion. But one thing that is hilarious about the whole Catalonia independence thing is the Lala la, la land spot. I mean, there's always this sense that once we're out of here, we're going to be growing like crazy. I mean, Catalonia has had more of a corruption problem with the post-bubble years than, than, than Spain as a whole has. Um, they actually had... Um, they expected that the European Union, there's not going to be any problem with the European Union with preserving the euro. And in fact, and this is the fantastic point, Juncker says, of course we'll enjoy free capital mobility. We're not going to give up our Spanish passports. So we will, we will have independence, but we'll travel with the Spanish passport. It's like, I mean, sorry. You know, it's fine if you want to be independent, but you're not going to be traveling. This is the, the head of the independence party. I mean, it's fine, but you're going to have some costs that you're going to take. And I agree with John, the UK will have to take the cost of not such a single market and not such a free mobility of, of citizens. And I think the wealth of a place like LSC is that if we count how many British citizens are in the audience, I bet you it's less than 10%. That always happens 
in the UK, and I think that's a fantastic thing of the UK. It's really a place where Europe actually, in fact, the only place where Europe actually exists as a place where people mingle and come together. Thanks, Luis. So I realized I did a horrible job as a, a chair in keeping people to their time, uh, but uh, so we are a little bit out of time, but I don't want to rob the audience of the chance of uh, asking maybe three or four questions. So what we'll do is we get the microphones to go there first, uh, then take uh, uh, maybe three, four questions altogether, and then let, uh, let uh, Luis respond. Okay, so. um. Haven't you underemphasized uh, the political uncertainty? You didn't mention the forthcoming Italian elections. You didn't mention the big question mark posed over Merkel's re-election by the surprising result in Lower Ta Saxony, which is clearly going to make her look far more internally into Germany than outside. Now, the second point I make as a former member of Parliament and a former member of the Scottish Parliament. There are two referenda in the UK, and there's one next year, in 2014, the Scottish referendum. Now, at the moment, I would say the SNP will lose that, but uh, if you speak to any senior civil servant in this country, they will say that Salmon is one of the wiliest politicians, and he could easily start campaigning on an independent Scotland within Europe and make Europe an issue in that referendum. Uh, the second point is, I totally agree with Professor Vreenan, as a former Conservative member of Parliament, a former Liberal Democrat member of the Scottish Parliament, about the Prime Minister's speech today. It's all about shoring up his personal position and fending off up UKIP, which is the final point, the uncertainty in the European elections next year, when UKIP may well, in fact, get more seats than any other party. No, let's go together, because we're out of time, and you have to be very short. In your all right, promise. Thank you. It all seems too little, too late, and too timid, and incredibly vulnerable to one shock, uh, one big shock. I mean, it could be, you know, people are worried about Japan, and the IMF have, have, have alerted, you know, it doesn't need much with Japan to start tipping. Uh, yeah, I'm just worried about the two million Spaniards on Red Cross food, food, says the director of the International Red Cross. So politics and social issues are really clashing here. Are you absolutely convinced that we're not going to need to go to the real wartime equivalent emergency measures collectively, sensibly, in order to prevent nasty extremism, breakdown, social unrest? Luis, I understood very well your, the political economy points that you made, like this bubbles corrupt institutions, but I still don't quite understand your financial engineering solution for the Eurozone. You start with how mispriced at the moment the risks are in the, in the EU. You talk about the bad governance of financial markets that got us into trouble inside and outside of the Euro. But then you have a solution to all that that... It depends a bit on efficiency of financial markets. And I'm afraid while I don't think financial markets are inefficient all the time, they are pro-cyclical, and we do not get around this. And therefore, I would somehow still think of solutions that throw, that de decouple a bit the you know, immediate uh, uh, hit that, that sovereign debt has to take from financial markets by being, for example, dependent on credit rating, on private credit rating, and some sand in the wheels of finance. So somehow I do not quite understand how you bring these two things together. Yeah, last one. 
Oh, this may be a little different issue uh, from today's discussion, but I'm very curious about the prospect of the Tobin tax, the financial transactions tax for the Eurozone. Do you think it is necessary and feasible or the opposite? Thank you. Okay, Louise, I think we... Okay, I'll promise to be quick. Uh, um, so thanks for all the questions. Uh, uh, ah, yeah, it's working. Uh, they all were uh, good. On the political uncertainty, you know, yes, I did mention the Scotland independence referendum and how that adds to the uncertainty. It's true that the German elections and all the rest haven't come in. You know, one thing that is amazing about this year is I thought of the accidents that could have, when you were asking, of the accidents that could have happened this year, right? So we had those Greek elections that came within a hair of Syriza victory, okay? And I am positive Europe wouldn't have given in to Syriza blackmail because they would have thought, look, this guy is going to start with this and he's going to continue. So if Greece had done that, they would have had to exit. Then we had the moment when the European, when, when, the, when Draghi in the summer, basically the, Uni the Europe was coming apart in July. We were really against the ropes. And Draghi said these nine words that basically he hadn't asked Merkel, apparently he gave a talk, a call to her, she was climbing in the Swiss Alps after he gave the talk. Okay, so um, those were nine words that suddenly kind of moved the rate in Europe by like 200 basis points. It was really massive. Then we had the Dutch elections, where basically three out of four main candidates were basically saying, we should just kill Greece, just let him, let him, let him go off. And then there was a Labour candidate who basically said in a debate, you know, I think we should continue saving Greece. I think the Euro project is a good project. We should continue on it. And I was like, whoa, this guy's going to be killed. And actually, he gained 15 points, 18 points over the next two weeks. People thought, oh, that sounds reasonable. So somehow, yes, all these accidents are there. And that goes also to your question. And somehow, you know, this is a completely rational argument by me. But somehow... When it comes down to the ropes, you know, middle classes are still very strong. The median voter is a middle class guy with some, the median voter is a middle class guy with some asset, with some job. And at the end of the day, when it comes down to the rope, he votes against Scotland independence, he votes against UK independence, and he votes for Merkel to continue, and he votes, I don't know what other elections you say. I think that guy who is like, oh, I don't want you, when it comes to the last moment, he thinks, you know what, this is just too good to to risk. You know? <laughs> That's, I think, what, what I'm learning from all these accidents that seem so yeah. close. But the median voter is getting close and close to the, to the limit. Um, too little, too late. Yes, one shock. We are away. One shock. I mean, the Greece thing would have, would have killed us. Are, is Spain able to put it up with it, or are there wartime emergency measures around the corner? I mean, people seem to be putting up with it pretty well. I mean, even as good as the Irish. I mean, mostly. You see these people in the, in the Porta del Sol, but then they end up being a few thousand, you know? The only thing that really is breaking things apart is, is really the Catalonia thing where, where it's going to be a very complicated bargaining. To Waltrot's question, and I finish there. Waltrot, I mean, I think a big part of that excessive convergence and that mistake by the financial markets was a mistake about the politics. They thought everybody would get bailed out. Uh, if you maintain that clear certainty that the junior debt in this arrangement is not going to be built out, I think you will maintain the differential. Will it be enough? Will what Walter said still happen? Still you'll have the bubble? I think you still will have bubbles. You still have crisis. Hopefully they won't get to this, to this extreme point. The problem I have, Walter, is I agree. Some sand 
on the financial markets necessary. And I did criticize excessive capital mobility as, 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 as a problem, like allowing the cajas to kind of expand this, all this freedom in the, in the financial markets for institutions that are not well, well governed. But I do think that if the alternative is the regulator, a lot of what we say, I've been talking about is that there has been an awful lot of regulatory capture and an awful lot of political economic problems. So as, as Stiger always said, yeah, it's all good and well to say there is a problem in the market, but when you talk about the, finance, the solution that you're trying to solve, you have to convince me why there's not going to be a problem in the government side. Um, the Tobin tax takes us a bit out of our discussion. I mean, yes, uh, uh, Samsung is possibly a good idea. Um, I don't think it can be done at a level that is beyond a little bit broader than what's been proposed, but, but I think Samsung, I agree, is good. Thank you, Luis, thank you very much. It was really, really a treat. Uh, thank you for the panelists. Thank you for the audience. And uh, see you next time. Mm -hmm.